Finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Rant, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. And this is a podcast where we talk about things. Oh, also, she's my mom in the library, and then I'm a writer, kind of, sort of, whatever. And uh, we talk about books. Those are the things we talk about. Not just books, but, you know, we read stuff, and we talk about it. This intro's getting away from me. Okay, so, for this episode, we read What Kind of Day Did You Have by Saul Bellow. So, Saul Bellow is an iconic American male writer. He's up in there, that echelon that they call the American Men of Letters. He has a very prestigious career, very well-known novels. He has won, I think he won three National Book Awards and a Pulitzer yeah, and he was, like, one of those, like, public intellectuals that, like, would go on talk shows and stuff, right? Yes. Yeah, he was kind of, like, maybe the last, like, celebrity American author. You know, uh, his career, he was born in 1915, and he ended up, he died in 2005. And the bulk of his career, the really hot part of his career was from, like, the 50s to the early 80s. And then he sort of slowed down a little bit. So I want to explain myself in case anybody read this novella for some reason. I had never read it before. I didn't know anything about it. I just knew I had a copy of the collected stories of Saul Bellow and there was a novella in there that I hadn't really read before or known anything about. And so I figured, hey, let's read it for the podcast. That'll be excuse enough to read it. I didn't, I don't, what was your, before we get too deep in it, what was your opinion on it? Because I kind of, I, I liked some of this, but I think overall this kind of irritated me. I like how you asked me what my opinion is and then you immediately told me. Well, I was giving you, you know. I like Saul Bellow and I kind and I see him as having two distinct epic or epochs of his career. He has this earlier sort of experimental, more avant-garde career where he's writing picaresque novels like The Adventures of Algie March and The Henderson and the Rain King. And then he has this sort of older, aging, coming of age, coming into his sort of, coming to grips with his mortality career where he writes things like Mr. Samler's Planet. And I think that's sort of, that's what this is. This was written... I think they said around 1984. Yeah, so it would have been like 73 yeah, years or something yeah. like and that. Yeah, and I think he, I have this sort of theory that all of the great American men of letters. He's 69. Yes. And, you know, American men of letters mm-hmm. in quotations, they go through this sort of, um, I'm getting older and I don't really like it. And here's what I hate about getting old. And here's what I hate about new writers coming up. And I feel like this is sort of the pinnacle of Saul Bellows feeling that way. Yeah, I think that the big takeaways from this are that Saul Bellows is afraid of dying. He's mad that getting old has made it harder to bun down. And he hates kids. Right. So I think like this and is, movies. This is like very self-biographical. And this is sort of, a, you know, a perfect example of Saul Bellow at, at the late end of his career. I think also Saul Bell goes through a period where, as as well as dealing with his mortality, he's starting to get this reputation 
during, you know, the critical analysis of his body of work up until this time, he starts to become more well-known as being specifically a Jewish writer. And mm-hmm. I don't think for a long time that was an identity that Saul Bellow wanted to take on. He wanted to be an American writer, a Chicago writer, a modern, a modernist. You know, he wanted to have sort of like, same thing like John Updike. He didn't want to be considered specifically a writer for, you know, talking about his Jewish life, his experience growing up being Jewish and and being sort of an intellectual, a Jewish intellectual in America at the time that he was writing. So I think this is also a reaction to the constant criticism or the constant reminder of his sort of Jewish experience that he didn't really want to be the focus of what he was known for. Yeah, okay, so let's, um, real quick, what this story is, is it's basically just a single day in the life of this woman named Katrina Gollinger, who is a divorced uh, mother of two, who is involved in a love affair with an elderly public intellectual named Victor Wolpe. Wolpe, I think, is pretty clearly a stand-in for Bello, but he is more, I, I think, more specifically based on Harold Rosenberg. There's a uh, article in Tablet Magazine uh, called, let me see, let me pull it up. It is called uh, Saul Bellow, my, my Harold Rosenberg, colon, Saul Bellow fictionalized my love affair, now here's my version, by Joan Ullman from 2012, where she professes that this novel is very directly based on her experience. Katrina is a not even particularly heavily fictionalized version of her, or her internal, like, all of the internal stuff, like, so much of this book is Katrina's internal monologue, but apparently a lot of the specifics about, like, her relationship to her parents and her relationship with Volpe are apparently drawn directly from Ullman's experience with Rosenberg, who were both kind of like in this sort of New York academic scene around the same time as Saul Bellow. I think that makes sense because a lot of Bellow's work is about, it's like a commentary on modern intellectual or academic life. Yeah. And, you know, it's mostly about like intellectual men who are trying to maneuver themselves through their careers or their family life or, you know, just being an academic or an intelligent person in society. He he often has a lot of these super intelligent men, which are also sort of a fawning self-biographical aspect of himself, where these men are, they're either having pressure put on them by people who are less... Mm-hmm intelligent than they are or people don't understand the hard and terrible life of an intellectual white man in america which is kind of like really boring right well it's really boring and then also it's sort of very sort of you know masculine without one of the things that a lot of these writers this is a small mini rant and i'm just going to go on right now I like a lot of these writers, but I see the flaw in liking these writers. Writers like John Updike and Henry Miller and John Irving and to some extent William Faulkner and especially Saul Bellow, they 
are very narrow in their area of expertise. They don't have strong female characters. The characters that they do have a lot of times are just sort of demoralized by men. Or like the Thomas Pynchon in The Crying of Lot 49 and this character, Katrina, they're independent women, but he makes them horrible. Yeah. So the thing with Katrina in this is she is a she is a pretty like not I'm not gonna say well drawn, but like thoroughly realized character, but she's emotionally frail and haunted and so much of her character and her thoughts are centered around this never this like internalized misogyny that is never really called out. I think but I, I want to rewind back to what you're saying about like them writing about the plight of the white male intellectual. I think the reason that this doesn't work for me and stuff like Fabella's other work, like Henderson the Rain King and Augie March work for me the reason those work for me and this doesn't is because this feels masturbatory. <laughs> because in like Henderson the Rain King is a kind of the clearest example, because that's entirely about taking this sort of character and then putting them out of their element. They're not in New York, they're not at the like lunch table with another intellectual, they're not, you know, teaching a class. He's in Africa. And he has to it's this guy dealing with this outside world and it I I always assumed the intention was to paint him as kind of absurd and pitiable. Like Henderson is this sort of spiritually atrophied guy at the beginning of the book. Well, I think And it's... like it seems Wolpe feels a lot like that kind of character, but Sabello is like, nah, he's he's great. Well, I think his earlier picaresque novels work because they seem almost more honest than this. This is a hundred percent about Saul Bellow's feelings about aging and being an intellectual. In the same way that the Rabbit books are so much about John Updike's experience about being, you know, the same situation. The last Rabbit book is almost like him just ranting and about how he feels about aging and becoming irrelevant. Yeah, and that's the ones that work the least for me. But I also think, too, I mean, his earlier works, they feel more modern. Bellow or Updike? Both. Both, yes. But especially Bellow, because it feels like he's the scrappy writer. It feels very modern. You can see sort of like his earlier works being the inspiration for later uh, metafiction. It's kind of... It's fresh, it's like revitalized writing. And by the time he gets to these types of things, they're sort of, they're slow, they drag, they're overworked, they're overthought. There's a lot more sort of massaging of his own ego, which is kind of like defeating sort of the spontaneity and the freshness of Bellow's work. Mm-hmm. I have another, here's my other take. I think another reason why, or another explanation for why I had such a negative reaction to this book. This feels like a story from the perspective of and about the bad guys in a George Saunders story. Exactly. In a George Saunders story, the protagonist would be the policeman or her ex-husband. And Wolpe and Katrina would be these weirdos in the background that are tormenting. Yeah. I mean, I think when we talked about, we talked a lot about this in The Crying of Lot 49. 
this female character that Bellows creates, who's supposed to be the protagonist. And I think it's like, okay, well, I haven't done a lot of work with females as the protagonist. Let me put one in here. She's incredibly passive. Yes, but that's exactly how a lot of women in male literature are portrayed. And it's kind of like, even though it's the 80s, it feels like it's the 60s. Yeah. Because there's a point where she has to, she's going through this contested divorce. Mm -hmm. And she has two children. And a lot of it's about the husband. Um, making her go see a psychiatrist and then taking all the family assets and then she's He's suing for custody of the kids so that he can have the house. And it sort of seems it's very dated. And then even also she's a housewife because she's divorced. And, you know, it's kind of like, these are not how women in the eighties acted. This is how women in the 1950s acted. It's. And if you're a strong independent feminist woman in the 1980s would you take up with such a bloated blowhard as walter i think well okay so two things one i think this style of writing comes it's weird because it does feel so much like the crying of la 49 which is like 20 years earlier i think this style of writing comes from dudes who are good writers who have like a strong sense of empathy and characterization Wanting to understand women, but being unwilling to talk to them as people. So we get, like, him looking at a woman and being like, well, what's going on in her mind? It must be that she's constantly thinking about how ugly and dumb she is. And I think the other part of it is, I imagine this story started from him seeing this woman in the relationship with Harold Rosenberg and wondering... Exactly what you just said. Why would you take up with such a blowhard? What must she be like to make her love this dude so much? And then him trying to write a story to understand that and not really nailing it. Because, like, these people do exist. Like, there was a woman who was, like, this age and this social status who was in the 80s involved with a similar you know, elderly blowhard intellectual. But I don't think this is a successful portrayal of that woman's internal life because it's very much couched in these very, you know, white man assumptions of what, straight white man assumptions of what women are like. But also, I think, think about the fact that Saul Bellow, for his entire career, was lauded over. He got award after award. He was a celebrity author. And he's coming down to the 80s. And he's writing things like this. And meanwhile, writers like David Foster Wallace, who publishes The Broom of the System in 1987, are doing work that is so different from what Saul Bellow does. And he sees that. He has to be upset about that. And I think that this is a reaction to his, in essence, becoming obsolete. Oedipa in The Crying of La 49 is a better character than Katrina. Yes. Oedipa's a bad person, but, like, I think she's more empowered. Her decisions feel more, like, thoughtful. I understand. It, one, I think when, when you have the framework of, like, Crying of La 49 is a book about mourning, then I think almost everything Oedipa does makes a certain level of sense. It's really weird. And I don't think she's an amazing, like, example of, like, a female character, but she's definitely better than this. I think what you're saying is right, though. 
because I think the character of Larry Rangel, the film producer, I mean, I think he represents Bella's, he represents modernism, he represents, like, Bella's problems with, like, film and pop culture, but I also think he's sort of there to stand in for, not even modernism, for postmodernism, and he's there to stand in for this newer crop of writers, because Wolpe's big problem with him, which I assume is also Bellow's big problem with similar thinkers, is he dismisses the idea of ideas, and he's sort of takes a lot of the air out of the things that Wolpe has built his entire life and persona around. And I think Saul Bellow probably sees stuff like The Broom of the System, which is like really dismissive of this kind of intellectual figure. And it probably does make him kind of insecure. I think you're right, though. I mean, but I think looking at it now in the construct of what's going on in society right now, I have very little tolerance or sympathy for the plight of the baby boomer intellectual who is suffering this sort of kind of rampant, like, rabid, like, fear of becoming too old, obsolete, or not the most relevant thing anymore. And I feel like reading this, even though Salbello did not write it in the context of what was going on now, it feels very relevant to that sort of pandering, that baby boomer ego stroking, the kind of, you know, there's the dismissive view of women feminists, and there's this sort of derogatory view of this, like the romantic rival, the Kriegstein, who is depicted as this sort of so anti-intellectual that he walks around carrying a gun. I mean, it's kind of, it's very... But it's like this book... Okay, one, I kept waiting for Volpe to get Volpe to get better. Because I was like, okay, this... Did you read, um... He kind of just drops Volpe so that he can make up this imaginary sex scene in a seedy airport hotel. Yeah. Did you, yes, it's, uh, straight people shouldn't be allowed to write about sex. It's gross. Uh, did you, did you read, um, Goodbye Mr. Rosewater by Kurt Vonnegut? I think, like, Kurt Vonnegut might be the only writer who can write these kinds of characters well. Because I kept waiting for the moment when Wolpe did or said something fun. Like, I was like, when is this guy going to give me a reason to like him, despite of the fact that he is, like, cause Rosewater is, a, in the, in that book, he's like this old rich dude from like old money, but he's like really nice and likable and it's all about him like trying to do good and the book is kind of an exploration of like, what is altruism and like, should we be altruistic? And he, Kervonigan manages to make this dude who I should have every reason to despise really likable and sympathetic. And I kept waiting for Bellas to pull that trick on Rosewater. I was like, when it became clear that he doesn't, that Rosewater is not supposed to be disgusting. Like when it became clear to me that like, we're supposed to, I mean, Wolpe isn't supposed to be disgusting. That we're like supposed to be on his side or whatever. I kept waiting for Bello to like pull the trick and like show me why I should like this kind of person that Bello is so clearly enamored of. And he never does it. Wolpe is all in, throughout the entire story is this sort of self-centered, self-obsessed chauvinist. Are yeah. you okay? You look really confused. Well, I think this whole 
this novella really confused me. I think that's the thing. Well, yeah. Well, getting back to what you're saying about the, uh, what is his name? Kriegstein? Yes. The police off the, this is, he, Kriegstein is almost like a pension character. He is yeah. like, he walks right out of Gravity's Rainbow. He's got the guns and he, he might not the be a police jack- officer. Yeah, the leather jacket and taking the kids to the Burger King. And it's, it's, so he's like, Bella's just saying, this is, a low-class individual. But I was going to say, that I am an intellectual giant. I am so great that American corporations will fly me in a private jet to talk to their employees. Yeah, but I think that's part of what makes this confusing is I know he likes Wolpe. I, I, I cannot, from everything I've read in the story, I cannot imagine this is supposed to be a condemnation of Wolpe. I can't tell how he feels about Kriegstein. Because Kriegstein is, like, dismissed continuously. Almost every sentence that is about him in the book is about how he's stupid and vulgar. But also, he shows up for the kids. He takes them out to eat. He cares about the the kids and about Katrina. And then at the end, she kind of dismisses that of this as this sort of, like, provincial thing of, like, oh, yeah, I'll be there for me, whatever. And also, the book hates kids and, like, keeps calling them, like, aliens and parasites that's because and so it's like is it am i supposed to pity him because he cares about the kids i think because wolfie doesn't care about the kids the part that enraged me the most but she calls her own kids like inhuman monsters at the end of the story for just being kids that seems like very realistic that a divorced single mom who was always put upon would feel that way about her children and then like i mean it doesn't mean she doesn't love her children and she's not a good mother it's just it you know, there's a point where you just, you've had enough. But she's not even, a, it's weird though, because it's not like she's around all the time and is like trying to get the lunches together and dealing with them crying. She's just constantly disappearing. So like, what, what yeah. is she even fed up with? That's the classic Saul Bellow, like, free spirit, you know. she She's not an intellectual because she doesn't have an academic background, but she's accidentally very smart and free spirited. And that's why Wolfie likes her. The part that enraged me the most and made me really realize that Saul Bellow had had very coddled life when it came to women was she asked Kriegstein to call the psychiatrist and make an excuse for her not to show up. First of all, the woman has to go to a psychiatrist to defend the fact that she wants to divorce her husband in 1984. Yeah, that seemed weird. And that she can't cancel the appointment. She has to get a man to do it for her. I guess think the idea is that because he's a police officer, he has some sort of authority. I don't know. That, that part just was, shows was you weird. that the women in Saul Bellow's life protected him from any kind of interaction with modern life. I think in Saul Bellow's house, it was probably 1957 every single day. Yeah, yeah. You know, even to the point where he jettisons his existing wife and he marries a younger woman, he's still treated like he's a 1950s intellectual god. Yeah. Uh, it's 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 bizarre. Yeah, no, it really... It, I, it really is. And I think that the only thing that... In, I mentioned this. When I, I talked about John Irving and I talked about how much I love John Irving from the sure. 80s. And then I think I mentioned a novel that he had written just maybe a couple of years ago about a woman who was a tattoo artist. And I was saying how the fact that John Irving's career, his early career was so strong, will protect his reputation from writing such shitty novels. 
And I think that's the same thing with Saul Bellow. This novel, this novella is so awful, but because Saul Bellow wrote it, he's riding on that success of his early career to sort of neutralize the awful mediocre work that he does in his late end of his career. I think, okay, well, the part that made me the most angry is the part about MASH. (laughs) It made me angry on a couple levels. One, I love Robert Altman, and I love MASH, the movie. I like the show, too, but I haven't watched enough of the show. My, My friend Ruben is a huge fan of the show. And they're really mean about MASH. They're also very dismissive of 2001 A Space Odyssey in this. And then she is constantly guilted and excoriated for making him go see MASH. It's portrayed as this, like, ultimate failing, and she is chastised by herself and by Wolpe continually throughout the book for daring to try and, like, turn him on to something. We get it, Saul. You don't have a television. Saul Bellow is the kind of guy who would claim all the time when people talk about Game of Thrones that he's never watched Game of Thrones and he doesn't even own a television. Yeah. And that's one thing. But I think specifically the attitude of her being like, uh, why somebody who, why would you want to be with someone who twisted his arm to go see MASH? And it's like, ooh, you had the temerity to make a recommendation to think you knew a thing was good that he didn't? You loathsome shrew? How dare you? And it's so... Gross and weird, and it's just like, ugh, I did not like that at all. I think you're right, though. I think that this Kriegstein and Wrangle and the whole thing with the MASH thing, I think they're all sort of Saul Bellow's dislike of pop culture. And I think in the 80s, it becomes like the cult of personality becomes more relevant, and people are famous for being famous. And, like, the celebrity lifestyle becomes, like, sort of really, you know, you start seeing all those, like, reality TV shows, lifestyles of the rich and famous. And I guess for him, as an intellectual, that's sort of, like, maybe the dumbing down of America, and he doesn't want that. So that's why he has such disdain for anything that's pop culture. Yeah, and then Wrangle is a comic book writer, and he, he worked on Buck Rogers, and it's like, that sucks, and he's bad. Like, I was reading this, and I was like, damn, Saul Bellow would have fucking hated me. <laughs> because I identified really strongly with Wrangle as this guy who's like, oh, yeah, like, there's all of this stuff in pop culture that's, like, worthwhile to examine. And, like, I see a lot of Wolpe reflected in these Buck Rogers comics, and it felt like Saul Bellow was making fun of me. <laughs> and... I, I mean, Wrangle is not a great dude, but, like, I, I think it's, like, he sees this new style of intellectual who, like, cares about pop culture and is interested in these postmodern ideas as being, like, just gross phonies, and I don't get it. Also, there's a lot about Marxism in this, but it's, like, very posturing. Like, it doesn't actually care about Marxist ideas, and even when it's, like, brought up, like, I, I definitely think there, there are flashes of self-awareness in this that are the best parts. So there, there's the part where Wolpe says straight up, you know, Wrangle, guys like Wrangle and their ideas scare me because they dare to ask this question of like, are all the things that I've done in my life actually worth it? And he, he's at the, you know, realizes he's getting towards the end of his life. He's sick. He's, you know, afraid to, to, Die at a point when people have decided that he 
his life was worthless. And, like, that's good. And if it had dealt more with that and more with Wolpe as, like, this, you know, scared human figure, I think it would have been better. And then there's the part where she's having the conversation alone with Wrangle, and he's talking about Wolpe. And Wrangle brings up, like, oh, these um, new American Marxists, how much they were sort of all talk. The, the guy who says they were all talk as compared to the European Marxists who, like, organized and took direct action. And that's just kind of touched on and left by the wayside. But I think that, like, if this book had been an examination of the failings of the idea of the intellectual and not a tribute and kind of a, you know, a, you know, hand job to the intellectual, I think it would have been a lot better. And you can tell that Bellas is smart enough that he sees the cracks in the idea of the intellectual. But instead of, like, digging in and exploring them, they, they scare him as much as they scare Wolpe, and he runs away from having to face up to them. I think Saul Bellow would be extremely unhappy if he was around today with this sort of cult of disdain for intellectualism. I think, I think the, this whole culture right now is about, you know, fighting against what, you know, the intelligentsia believe. I think, like, but his problem isn't with, he doesn't give a shit about people who would be anti-intellectual. He thinks Kriegstein is stupid and pathetic. He's What he's scared of is other people who are maybe as smart or smarter than him telling him that he's a blowhard. Yeah, I think I think you're right, because that, that's why he doesn't see Kriegstein as, like, a romantic rival. Yeah. But I kind of feel like he doesn't ever... I mean, he's so sexist. He never, ever appreciates the fact that this interesting, smart woman is interested in him. He just takes it for granted that she's going to fly to Chicago to meet him. Literally, all she does is fly to Chicago. She flies to Chicago to meet him. They run into Wrangle twice. Their flight gets laid over in Detroit. They go to a motel room and have sex, and Wolpe briefly becomes interesting as he kind of has a short existential crisis in the hotel room. And he's talking about, like, the nature of the universe. And he brings up that idea of, like, I'm scared of postmodernism. And then she flies home and is briefly scared that her husband kidnapped the kids. But it turns out Kriegstein just took them to Burger King and then to get some ice cream, some chocolate marshmallow mousse for dessert. But he's so confident in himself. He doesn't even care what happens to her after he gets out of the airport. Yeah. He immediately has to go to this lecture that he's giving because he's so important. And these people care about what he has to say. I don't know. I feel like if you're like, I want to read some Saul Bellows. This is not a good one. Maybe just, you know, read, you know, The Adventures of Augie March or Henderson. Henderson the Rain King. Herzog, maybe? Herzog is definitely a good one. But yeah, I definitely think you're right. There is kind of the two errors. Because this is more of a piece with, like, Humboldt's gift than it is with Henderson. I mean, Mr. Samler's Planet is pretty much about the same thing. I never read Samler's so. Planet. What do you make of the thing with her and the elephant and the kid and the children's story? Is that another knock at her intelligence that, like, her ambition is to write a story for children and she can't even figure out how to finish it? Do you know what I'm talking about? I, I just saw it as, like, a weird quirk that he put in there to make her seem, like, more, you know, bohemian. But it's like her internal life is, Wolpe is thinking all of these big thoughts, and her internal life is consumed with the question of, how do I get an elephant 
out of a department store, which is like a silly idea. I couldn't tell if it was like it did. It, it felt like another instance of sexism where it's like, oh, she's thinking about this silly idea and she can't even figure it out on her own. Well, that's what I. And my, then her and Wrangle have a conversation about it, and it's like, oh, Wrangle's willing to get down into the dirt and talk about this elephant story, and Wolpe couldn't even begin to fucking care. Well, that's what I think because Wrangle is like creative. Yeah. So, and I thought like I thought that was weird, and I thought it was weird that he was like obsessed with like mentioning that Wrangle made pornos, and I guess like that's my other theory is Wrangle. At one point, I was like, is Wrangle Tony Scott? And then I was like, is Wrangle Vonnegut? Because it's like, oh, he's had all, he's he's interested in these sort of more postmodern ideas. He's, he's oh, he makes porn. Well, no, he said he didn't make pornos. He's, we, they just talked about it. And he said, oh, those productions are different than mine. And then they say a weird dismissive thing about porn. They're like, all you need is interracial couples pumping away. And it's like, God damn it, Saul, shut up. <laughs> Have you ever seen a porno, Saul? I mean, come on. Uh, he definitely has. I'm sure Bella watched some 8mm reels of stag films in his den with a cigar. Yeah, I kind of, I, I had, the, the two notes I had was intellectual sexism and then seedy den aesthetic. Oh, yes, very much so. So, that were my two takes on Mr. Wolpe. Oh, but Wolpe's a man of the people, so he always rides in the back of the plane. But he gets preferential seating because his knees are bad. Which <laughs> is like a very specific detail. We had to know his seating habits. Which, I mean, I think that's there because it's supposed to be an example of, like, how obsessed with Wolpe Katrina is. So she knows all the particulars of how he likes to get on the plane. But that was the part where I was, well, that was one of the parts where I'm like, oh, wait, I think we're supposed to like this guy. But it's like, riding coach does not humanize him to me. But she, he makes her fly to him so that he can fly back without being alone. Yes. Like, there's no purpose to her even going there except to carry this daughter's violin. Yeah, but she's, yeah. She's also an awful oh, person. Oh, he hates his kids, too. His His kids are bad. He doesn't like his adult kids. His adult kids are awful because they don't appreciate the life that he gave them. He's so he's so red and mad and nude in this story. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I, can you like in your mind picture a lot of baby boomers like just being like, yes, oh yeah, he's exactly writing up my like problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, totally, absolutely. Uh, I don't know how much more I have to say about this. I didn't like it very much. Like I said, I liked. Some parts. I liked when he gets more introspective, but that is almost immediately ruined by a very gross sex scene. I think Saul Bell was a very careful writer, and mm-hmm. he's very technically talented at writing, and he's a very good writer, because even though this was an awful story... It's readable. We still read 171 pages of it. Yeah, yeah. So, we, so there was that. He's got an ear for language. Like... It's it's fine. It's not a slog to get through. It's just every couple of pages you're like, oh fuck all of these people in this story. And kind of fuck you, Saul Bellow, because I can see your hand moving the puppets. What is so bad about this is this actually made me prefer to read Thomas Pynchon. Yeah. I mean, okay, look, I like Thomas Pynchon. But, yeah, yeah. No, I, it's like I said before, Crying the Lock 49 is better. 
it's the same style of like I'm gonna tell one of those you know how I write all these books about how about all these assholes? I'm gonna write one about a lady and she's also gonna be an asshole. It's that same thing, but it's crying on forty nine's better. I think this is And there's more to dig out because it's not just a guy who's resentful airing his resentments through these weird straw men. Like there's more ideas at play in the crying of Lot forty nine. I think Swabella's it because he has lived through the equal rights time, the yeah. women's movement, that his sort of misogynist take on a feminist is a feminist can be just as terrible as a man. Not that you I have to have I think equal she's supposed rights. to be a feminist. No, but it's exactly what you said. This female protagonist, she could have easily just been a man. It's like Jonathan Franzen. Like, every single person think... is horrible. There's no redeemable characteristics about the characters that he's writing. Because they're also... Like, in a Jonathan mm. Franzen novel, everyone's an asshole. But I don't think... If she had... Saul Bella would never have written a man like this. Because he would have been... Her internal life is so claustrophobic and like I said like emotionally frail and I I think that's just because she's a woman this is what he thinks of at least a certain kind of woman and like his similarly like you know feckless doofball male protagonist they have more of like an internal spiritual life than Katrina Dollinger is allowed to have but how about the sister is exactly like you said she is literally enclosed in a bedroom because her marital furniture is so big that she can't get out of her bedroom. I forgot about that. Yeah, that does happen. Her sister is weird. I don't understand that character. She's I, I, she's just really shitty, I guess. She's very mean to Katrina. All the women are mean to each other. The maid is very mean to Katrina when she asks her to stay because she's delayed. And she's like, no, bitch, I'm going to bingo. Yeah, I've so got time for your kids. Almost this whole novella is just a series of people showing up and telling Katrina she's dumb and ugly. And Wolpe kind of does the same thing, but also he wants to fuck her, so I guess that makes him better. But he acts like he's doing her a favor. Yeah. Like his relationship with her is more of a benefit to her than it is to him. Yeah, no, it's this, it's very much, the, the story is very much obsessed with the idea of that, like, of this, this intellectual figure who's, like, real and honest and realer than everyone around them. And, like, Wrangle's smart, but Wrangle's fake. And Christine is, like, shallow. He doesn't have an internal life. And, like, Wolpe is this vast well of, like, you know, thought and experience and insight, and that makes him like a more valuable person than everyone else around him. Yeah. And I more think... deserving of this sort of like praise and adoration. She calls him a wizard <laughs> over and over again. That's... And a giant. And he's like mythical to her, but he never does anything to justify that. But wouldn't you, if you were an aging you would intellectual, yeah. when you want people saying those things to you? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure that's that's exactly, yeah. Instead of worrying that you're too old to keep your tenure? Yeah, absolutely. I think what's so infuriating about this novel, and it's not even Saul Bella's fault, is that it's just so relevant to the way things are 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. Today. But it also bummed me out because it was like, this feels very relevant, but the, weirdly enough, the part that feels the most dated is like, they're actually talking about Marxism in academia. <laughs> which, like, God, I wish. Even if it was on so, as shallow a level as they seem to be talking about it in this book, I would fucking... Oh, I want that so bad, but it's like, no, you don't even get that. You just get people railing against Marxism. I was, I really was shocked to find out that this was written in the 80s. It doesn't, definitely does not feel It feels completely in a time capsule of 1970. Only thing that really dates it are the references to the movies. They reference MASH, 2001, and Star Wars. Which are all 70s movies anyway. Yeah, it's just, I don't know. If I was a cat, I would just barf up a hairball right now on the carpet. Okay, so, do we have anything else to say? Ugh, no. What kind of day did you have is bad. It made me mad at Saul Bellow, who is a writer I like. Read his earlier stuff, don't read this. Exactly. What else do you want to talk about on this episode? I wanted to talk about a book that I'm currently reading, which is pretty new. It's called A People's Future of the United States, and it's edited by Victor Laval and John Joseph Adams. Yeah, John Joseph Adams is a really prolific sci-fi and fantasy editor. I don't know if he still is, but for a while he was like the head editor at Lightspeed Magazine, uh, which is a really good, really good uh, magazine that <clears throat> has never published any of my stuff for some reason. I don't, you know, maybe, so maybe he's not that good an editor. I don't know. And he's edited a ton of anthologies, and then like Victor Laval, obviously he's a hot, you know, writer. I mean that in the like buzz sense but not that he's an unattractive man um and he wrote you know the ballad of black tom which we've talked about a couple times that book rules and he got a ton of buzz off of that and he's done you know some other stuff since then he did the comic destroyer he did the changeling right and i think both the ballad of black tom and the changeling have been like option for either television or for movies yeah so anyway, this is a this is a short story compilation, and it's all speculative fiction. And there's 25 current writers in mm-hmm. sci-fi, fantasy, all kinds of different things. And the premise is is that this is based on how it's sort of a take on Howard Zinn's novel, um, his history book. And it's all speculative fiction written after and influenced by the 2016 election. So it's takes on what the world would be like in the future if we continue on the path that we are on now. So that's a really sort of interesting premise that they're working on. So it's kind of like there's a lot of really heavy hitting names in there. Mm-hmm. Charlie Jane Anders has a story. She NK. Yeah, N.K. Jemison is in here. Uh, Jamie Ford, who has some following as a as a novelist. Um, Daniel Jose Older is in there. There's lots of really um, up and coming. Catherine M. Valente is also in in this compilation. Mm-hmm. Um, She's a personal favorite of mine. I like her writing a lot. And then Victor Laval writes an essay to start off this you know, to introduce the stories and to talk a little bit about his experience after the election and the kind of culture that we're living in now. So it's kind of like, it's interesting because it's speculative fiction, it's dystopic fiction, 
but it's really contemporary. Even though some of the stories are in the future, it sort of deals a lot with like the gender politics, um, immigration, the sort of intellectual fascism that we're sort of kind of is developing in the United States at this time. And it's very, it's sad and scary. And every one of these stories are very well written and sort of relevant. So I assume the title, right, is supposed to be a play on Howard Zinn's People's History of the United yes. States? And I think the same premise, that Zinn, like Victor Laval talks about this in the essay in the beginning, Zinn wrote this sort of history of the United States as a way to popularize the alternative histories that were happening. People weren't talking about, you know, the immigrant experience. They weren't talking about different races. So he wrote a history that told the story of the United States from the perspective of those that were marginalized. And yeah, then, it's very much a reaction to the, the mainstream textbook version of American history. And I think this is the same thing. This is a speculative fiction, and the premise was tell the story of the future of the United States from the point of view of an alternative culture. So there's some stuff about gender and immigration. There's stuff about this sort of rise of fascism in the United States. And, you know, some of the stories take place in an extremely idealized fascist state and then, you know, people trying to live and progress amongst this kind of new culture that the 2016 election has put us into. So it's kind of really, it's really avant-garde, really thought-provoking. What are some standout stories that you've read so far? Well, I like the Charlie Jane Anders story, which is about, uh, her work seems very optimistic. It's the story of, I guess at some point, the United States and California split. And then the border of California and the United States, there's a bookstore that straddles both of those. Okay, yeah, this and feels United, very much in her wheelhouse. Yeah, and the the American st- colonies, you know, the original United States, the 49 states, they stayed together, but they became this extremely militant religious group. And then the California state was became a country that was very liberal and very much dependent on technology. And these two countries were now warring. So this book store that straddles both of the borders is sort of like a way station for people to come together. Sounds interesting. I like her work a lot. I've been following her career like for a really long time because I was, you know, reading like IO9. Oh no, I first became aware of her when she was writing for a blog on Wired, I think. Back when Wired had like a blog collective attached to their website. And then I think she was writing for that. And then they went off to io9. And I was reading that from day one. But she has a very, I like her work a lot, but she has a very weird sort of relationship with Silicon Valley. I think she's, is she Gen X? I don't know. I don't know what her age is, but it feels like she has this very, she feels like she has this very Gen X sense of like tech optimism that she hasn't shaken. Like, um, all the Birds in the Sky, which I talked about on our, like, year and wrap-up, has this kind of dual thing where it's, like, one of the char- one of the protagonists is interested in tech and one of the protagonists is a witch. And 
I kept waiting for like the shoe to drop on like a critique of this Silicon Valley, like Elon Musk, I'm going to take us to Mars and save the world. But bullshit. And it doesn't, it's not like, she doesn't portray those guys as being completely falseless, but it's a little bit of like a more optimistic view than I think a lot of younger writers and thinkers would have. So I'd be interested to see her like take on what if that was a whole country? Yeah. <laughs> Which I- is what your description makes it sound like California becomes the Silicon Valley, the country. Right. And that's exactly it. A lot of these stories have to deal with this sort of invasion, not just the invasion of technology in our lives, but the invasion of the sort of um, surveillance aspect of social media. And it's interesting. One of the short stories is a story of a young man and his father in the future. And they have, they're having this conversation in a self-driving car and the dad, he's obsessed with technology, but only older technology. So the son has a neural implant, which he connects to the cloud and does all of his business. And the dad has his arm computer that he still uses. Okay. So it's kind of like, you know, like a clash of cultures. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of discussion about um, gender politics and about the sort of um, restriction of people's freedoms for expressing their sexuality. That's a big theme that comes up a lot in these stories. There's a lot about environmental issues. I guess anything that's relevant to what we're dealing with now in our culture is sort of projected into how it will be in the future. When they're, are they, wait, I could, I know you said it, I'm sorry, but are they all set at a specific point in the future? No. I think the premise was what would the future be like if we continued on the path that we started after the 2016 election? So there's a lot of like, some of the writers took on, you know, different issues that are important to them, race, sexuality, gender, those kinds of things, and then wrote about their own take on it. So they all take place in different sort of constructs, different worlds, different time periods. Some were set in the very near future. Some were set far. There's mm. lots of talk about immigration and about sort of government restriction and control of, like, resources. Yeah, okay, I'm trying to think of, like, what if, what if I was approached for this, what would I have written about? I think I probably, I'm, these are my two ideas of what I would have done. I would have, I, one, I would have, idea one is, it's set really far in the future. And this is an idea I've sort of, like, batted around in, like, a couple things that I haven't, like, really finished or put totally to page yet. Where it's, like, inequality has become so rampant that humanity is reduced to a handful of nigh-immortal, super-rich cyber revenants. And it's like, everyone has died off because of climate change and disease, and it's like, Elon Musk with his head on a mech, and like, the uploaded brain of Michael Eisner are the only humans left on Earth. (laughs) (laughs) And then the other idea is, I would write something that was set in like a Hunger uh, Games-esque, like, Bloodsport murder dome, but we started the murder dome and stopped caring about it, and now there's just a culture that has evolved inside of the murder dome who keep waiting for someone to, like, abolish the murder dome and set them free, but nobody cares or remembers, and they're all caught up in dealing with other problems that appear more pressing. I was very hesitant about reading this 
Because it seemed like it might be a bummer. Exactly. But what I was finding that, even though the stories are very sort of raw and real and meant to sort of make you realize, you know, this is the potential future, they all have some element of being positive. A lot of the stories have to deal with people who are fighting the system, about resistance, about despite the fact that there's like all these hard, you know, hard things that they have to deal with, keeping the sort of humanity about themselves and keeping themselves true to their identity, I think is very important. Well, I think the framing it specifically as the people's future of the United States and grounding it in the like, this specifically has to be, what if we continued on the path from the 2016 election? I think forces the people writing it to connect this vision of the future more directly to their present experience than they would have otherwise, which makes you want to write something more optimistic because it feels more like, well, I'm going to end up here, or my descendants or whatever are going to end up here. And it feels less like you're writing about... I think sometimes when you're writing science fiction and you're writing about the future, it feels less like you're writing about what's you know definitely going to happen at the end of our specific timeline and more like you're writing about some alternate universe. Right. And I feel like this has a bunch of, like, handles that ground it more in our timeline than you would have, would otherwise, which makes you want to, you know, I think that kind of makes you want to write something totally bleak less than you would, or makes it harder to write something absolutely bleak than it would otherwise. But I think one of the clear sort of themes of all of these stories is that we are either passively or actively allowing the people in charge to take away some of our freedoms. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a sobering sort of concept. And we talked about this before, this sort of, um, I don't know if they call them like, is it Gen Z, like this sort of age, like generation after millennials. Yeah, Gen Z, Zoomers, which is a weird term because I had heard people keep calling them Zoomers, which I think is stupid because it sounds stupid. But also... I remember listening to, like, a podcast or a stand-up bit where a guy was talking about a weird magazine that was for active baby boomers that was called Zoomers, and that's all I think about when people say Zoomers. It takes me a second to be like, oh, they mean, like, 15-year-olds. But I think, like, I mean, we had talked about this and probably on a previous podcast, and it's well known that I can't even remember which thing I discussed on which podcast. Um, We talked about this generation being very comfortable and enjoying dystopic fiction because they can relate to that so intensely because they already see the sort of destruction of American society. And I feel like this short story... um, I think that's the thing, right? There's My generation had some... I mean, there's a lot of dystopian fiction that was enjoyed by my generation when they were younger and whatever, but there's a lot of apocalyptic fiction. Because we're the generation that were, like, just aware enough when it happened to remember 9-11 and the financial collapse and the start of the Iraq War and see the events that lead to this. The younger generation is born into a world that's already gone through those. It's just like, yeah, the economy's fucked and it's always been fucked. And, like, you didn't see it happen, so it's easier... I think it is easier to relate to, for them, to the powers and forces of darkness are entrenched and in charge. Whereas I think for a lot of my generation, it's this 
the more relatable thing is the story about the crumbling. Yeah, and I think, like, as a Gen Xer, like, you know, and reading, like, William Gibson's kind of, like, oh, like, technology is kind of like this. I also think that's why Star Wars is really popular with my generation. Because it's, like, Star Wars is all about, like, things were cool in the past, and now they suck. <laughs> and, like, what are we going to do about it? So, like, you, you look at William Gibson and you're like, okay, technology's bid, but we're going to take it over and we're going to hack into it and make it good and we're going to hack for the collective. Yeah. And then, like, this is, like, hacking is a micro job where you get paid because you can't get a job. Any- and so it's, like, yeah. kind of a different view of, like, what technology is. And then kind of having that sort of, like, um, Blade Runner as kind of like eye in the sky watching you as an impressive like comment on like you know capitalism to becoming like social media is so invasive there's a story in here about gender politics where if you're not cons- completely heterosexual then you hide your sort of your true identity by having this fake social media persona. Mm-hmm. And then the government monitors this persona. So if anything appeals, if anything is targeted to them as being not exactly heterosexual or normal or you're, you know, then you get sort of flagged. So there's this whole thing about using social media to create this construct of being a normal person because if the government sees you as a non-normal person, then you're targeted for, like, reassignment or whatever. And so it's kind of like this invasive... Social media has become so invasive that it is part of the government's way to control the people, which I guess is something that, like, you know, the newer generation, they've grown up in a world with social media. They have been born in a world where Facebook has always existed. So they're kind of used to, they're more comfortable, or they might not be even be more comfortable, but they're more familiar with this invasive use of social media, mm-hmm. which is kind of like really scary, I think. But I was thinking about what you said about 9-11, and this sort of reminds me of the sort of, after 9-11, a couple of years after 9-11, and all the fiction that was contemporary fiction was writing about 9-11 because mm-hmm. it had become such current historical moment that it was affecting the culture, the writing and things like that. And I think the 2016 election is also becoming that way. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Absolutely. I mean, even in the immediate aftermath, there was stuff like, uh, like one of the hot, you know, non big two comics that launched pretty soon after the 2016 election was Cal exit, which is literally about California seceding from the United States and it's like this really bleak, violent, speculative fiction comic. And I think we're seeing a ton of stuff that's like dealing with these sort of feelings of like loss of power and like the victory of evil that people are experiencing in the wake of the 2016 election. Yeah, and I think that this these stories are really provocative because they're really thought-provoking and they're really sort of on point in summing up like how people feel right now in contemporary society, but also sort of looking towards the future. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, I would highly recommend these short stories. Yeah, they sound really interesting. I mean, obviously there's a ton of of writers that I like involved in it. I, I would like to read it at some point. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting that the writers, the selection, they're 
they're all writers who are contemporary now. They're actively writing. They're not the most, um, you know, they're not number one bestseller authors or whatever, but it's a good sort of overview of the different types of fiction that's currently being written now. You know, it's not all sci-fi. It's not all fantasy. It's not all sort of dystopic or speculative fiction. Cool. So. Do we have anything else to Well, what are we reading next? Next week, we're starting our uh, new comic series. We've finished with Sandman. We're going to move on to something else. But we're going to stay in around the same realm for right now. We're actually going to go back a little bit to what is probably one of the most direct predecessors to uh, The Sandman, which is Alan Moore's run on Swamp Thing. We're going to start with book one of Saga of the Swamp Thing by Alan Moore with our, from Stephen Bissett and John Pottleman. And, uh, when, back when I first read Swamp Thing in the earlier printings of the trade paperbacks, I believe this one was called, uh, volume one, Secret of the Swamp Thing. So. I haven't read Swamp Thing. And I will try my hardest not to call him the Swamp Thing. He kind of, that's fine. I think he is called the Swamp Thing, the Swamp Thing at various points. Um, but yeah, this will be interesting. We talked about, if you go back and listen to our first Sandman episode, I talk about, you know, the evolution of Vertigo comics and how Swamp Thing kind of laid the groundwork and the formula for what a Vertigo comic is and how that sort of first volume of Sandman really follows the formula laid out by Alan Moore and Bissett and Tottleman in their, you know, their Swamp Thing run. And, uh, yeah, it's really good. It's one of my favorite comics. It's got the first, this volume doesn't have it, but at some point while we are reading Swamp Thing, we will read the very first appearance of one Mr. John Constantine. Oh, does he have his... He's pretty much fully formed when he shows up. He's kind of, there's a, he kind of is, um, he's a little, you know, more mysterious initially. He's kind of like a, in a very Joseph Campbell sense, he's kind of like a, a mystic mentor to the Swamp Thing early on. But he's got the trench coat and the cigarettes and he looks like Sting, even from the beginning. So that'll be cool. And then after that, our next novella is going to be uh, The Word for World is Forest by Ursula Le Guin. I think also in that episode, we'll have a discussion of you... Your finishing of the Hugo Award list? Yes, I did finish my Hugo Award list. I promise you this no this novella episode recording right now, and also the next one will go up. We're not gonna have another layer of the white worm missing episode fiasco. Well, that's okay because people got, you know, some really deep dark into the vault. Yeah, they got they got dried a little, up brain. A little bit from the archive, which I guess is nice. I have more episodes from the archive that I'll put up. When uh, I inevitably do break my promise and lose some episodes or something. Or maybe just as a bonus, if we have some extra bandwidth or something at the end of the month. Uh, but yeah, that's it. Um, what kind of data you have sucks. People's history of the United States is good. Read Swamp Thing in preparation for the next episode. And check out the word for world is for us. Cause, uh, well, that's another one I haven't read. So maybe it'll, maybe it'll be another writer I like completely betraying me. But I think this one's good. And I have enough faith in... Ursula Le Guin, that it will be good. So, uh... That's all for now. Spoiler alert, stay tuned.